This is the Let's Grab Coffee podcast, and I'm your host, George Khalife. We, we were just talking about um, you, you know, coming from, from different paths, right? Obviously, a serial entrepreneur, a best-selling author, you're a keynote speaker. I think a lot of folks who probably have come across you have come across you the three ways like I did. It was through your book, Disrupt, which I personally loved. I know you have a new one coming up, which we're going to talk about. Disrupt you. There you go. This is it. This is the one I'm talking about. Uh, they, they might have come across the TEDx talk or even your interview with Tom Bilyeu on, on the Impact podcast. So curious, how did you get started? First of all, if we go back like a couple of years uh, you know, to, to your first entrance into entrepreneurship, how did it all start? Um, the honest answer is I didn't set out to be an entrepreneur. I bought into society's promise that if you go to school and you get good grades, you live happily ever after. And I graduated college and there were no jobs. And if you look at today, where half of all jobs will disappear in the next five years, that promise uh, definitely has eviscerated. But I had sons very early, and I looked down at them, and I wanted them to have a better life. And so that gave me the perseverance to overcome all the obstacles. And you only need two things to be successful, insight and perseverance. And so um, I was the first guy. I had this crazy idea of getting video on a computer and and internet and video games and all these great things to first, you know, did the first auction, you know, eBay and did LinkedIn with uh, Reed Hoffman. And, but I noticed a pattern. I noticed that I grew up working class. Dozens of friends became billionaires. I couldn't imagine it. I couldn't imagine a millionaire. <laughs> and there's a new self-made billionaire every 48 hours. So I don't know what you did this past weekend, but you're a slacker. Um, so what is it? that they're doing with the same 24 hours we have. Can it be taught? And I've sat in an empty room and started companies that have sold for hundreds of millions and billions. And I've run giant companies with hundreds of thousands of employees where you want to shoot yourself when you're CEO. Um, and, and I've taken companies public, something that's near and dear to your heart. Uh, uh, that's probably a good place for us to start. Mm -hmm. So anytime that you structure a deal, that's where you make wealth. Wealth isn't from saving like, you know, Warren Buffett, you know, saved and saved, but he made 99% of his wealth after he was 50. Right. Kylie Jenner's 22 and a self-made billionaire. I know which path I think I'd rather take. Um, but <laughs> there was a company that, that had some issues, wasn't profitable, had uh, lifetime sales of $30,000, but I knew what I could do with them. And so I went in and took half ownership of the company. And 90 days later, took them public for $440 million. Hmm. New York Stock Exchange. So wealth can be created. There are no gatekeepers to success. So if you can teach people how money actually works, where money comes from, and that's really what I started with Vin in this journey in Future Proofing You. In elementary school, you and I were taught if Jay buys an apple for a dollar and I sell it to you for $2, I make a dollar. That's how, how the world works. And that's true, but that's called zero-sum game, game theory. Mm -hmm. For me to get a dollar, I have to take it from you, which means right. if the other person gets a promotion, I can't get one. If foreigners take my job, if robots, you start hating the world. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I said to you, I've got this new business, I'll sell you 10% for $10,000. You give me the 10,000, I don't have 10,000. I now have 100,000. I also have the 90,000 I created out of thin air that I can use to hire people, buy companies, do stuff. 
And that's where most of the wealth is not coming from the Federal Reserve. It's coming from entrepreneurs creating value. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. So uh, I really resonate with the with the making money piece because so originally I'm, I'm Middle Eastern, born born in Lebanon, raised in the Middle East. And I don't, I don't know how familiar you are with, with the Lebanese culture, but when it comes to money, we it's very, very different than what you have in North America uh, in terms of our risk tolerance, what we oh. deem, right, in terms of, of, of what we like look to do with our capital. It's just a very, you're, very different world. You're closer to the norm is what you don't realize. Um, so Disrupt You has changed lives. I've heard from readers in 140 countries. It's in 10 languages. It's coming out in Urdu. It's coming out in, in wow. Icelandic. I mean, just crazy. Um, and in traveling the world and, and working with people, I realized the only competitive advantage that we have in America, we don't have more money, we don't have better education, we have no shame, we have no fear of failing. So if you understand that you have to fail to be successful, a child doesn't wake up one day and say, I am going to walk across the room, look at me. They try, they stumble, they try to stumble. When you play video games, you fail, then you figure out how to get past that obstacle and you fail again and you fail your way to success, which is how Jeff Bezos could lose money year after year after year and come out the other side of it as the richest man in the world. So I try to explain to people that failing is part of the process. You don't end up where you started. You either earn or you learn. And that's the attitude. So that I grew up in the era of, of I Love Lucy, uh, now you have the Simpsons, you know, Homer gets a get rich quick scheme. He tries, it falls apart and life goes on. When I'm speaking in many other countries, you know, if you would go to your parents and saying, uh, Google's just offered me a job out of university or I can start my own business. I mean, they'd smack you in the head with a frying pan <laughs> and say, you want to start your own business. And so I've worked with governments to set up programs to encourage entrepreneurship, to create local heroes, to give people a path because the middle class is getting squeezed out and you grew, grew up in a country that was once a paradise and then, you know, a war zone. Mm -hmm. And there's never been a war between two countries that have a McDonald's, which is a way of saying a stable middle class. So I'm dedicating what time I had left teaching people around the world because I want to expand the middle class, not contract it. Right. Right. In terms of disruption, what, what were your thoughts on when, when the pandemic happened? I think a lot of like disruption naturally happened in a lot of people's lives, whether it was financial, health, whatever the category is. What was your personal take on what you observed there? So, so I spent five years traversing the world with Disrupt You, telling everybody, whether by choice or circumstance, every career gets disrupted. I don't have to argue that point anymore. Okay. Um, that's a given. So what is different? And so first of all, to be successful, you have to start with a growth mindset. That's chapter one of the new book, okay? So I'll tell you a funny thing that isn't on the topic of business, but just shows you the power of a positive mindset. So I start each day by saying, today can be better than yesterday, and I have the power to make it so. Mm -hmm. That releases endorphins, open shit opportunities. So when the pandemic hit, I don't think we'd be as incompetent as we were as a country, and this would take this long. I figure we're in the house 30, 60, 90, 100 days. How can I show people the positive of this? I mean, it's horrible. You get sick. I mean, die. That's, but where's the silver lining? And for me, somebody that flies a couple hundred thousand miles a year, it was, I suddenly am staying home. I have to give them time. What's something that I could do that I couldn't do before because I didn't have the time? So 
in my private life, I've, I've always created art and painted. I never showed it on social media. It's my own private thing. But to show and influence people to think the positive, I started painting and posting a painting every single day for the first 100 days of the pandemic. And here's the wacky part when you put out positive vibes. Art collectors start looking, gallery owners, art agents. Next thing you know, in September, I had a solo art show in Manhattan, mind blown at a top gallery. Wow. Works being bought by famous people and getting commissioned by famous people to do paintings. I cannot make my life up, but it all comes from that positive mindset. So when I took this kid that I mentored, business his name, how do you get somebody from welfare that comes from that background to instantly have a positive mindset? And I didn't let him read the book until it was already typeset at the printers because I wasn't going to change anything. And what he found out when he read it is in our first meeting, I lied to him. Now, I don't like to lie, but here was the reason. There's an effect called the Pygmalion effect. There was a professor who went to school, tested all the kids, told the teachers, these three kids would be super achievers, super learners this year, super growers. At the end of the year, they take a test and lo and behold, those three kids exceed everybody in the school. The trick was the professor never looked at the test results from the first test, picked three names at random, but told the students and the teachers they were special. And by believing that you were special, you instantly got this growth mindset. So I told Vin that I interviewed hundreds of people. And out of all the people that I interviewed for this experiment, he had all the right attributes. He was the only one that I knew could make a million dollars in a year. And I actually, that would have been unfair to do a test that way. It's like, I'm going to teach somebody to play golf. Here, Tiger Woods, come over here. I'm going to teach you. I only interviewed Vin. I didn't introduce him to him, but because he saw that this old successful guy believed in him, he went along with it. And six months into the process, when he'd already earned a half a million dollars, more money than anybody, his family or relatives for generations, he sent, he gave me a note that he wrote himself after our first meeting, the first day. And I basically said, I don't believe this. I think this guy's full of it, but I got nothing else. So I'll play along. And he said, going along with the process, was probably the biggest life change. But when you say going along with the process, what, like, did you give him sort of uh, keys or, or a structure as to what kind of process to follow? So um, the book is broken down into what I call 12 truths. So if you follow these 12 truths, your business will be successful. I, a good mentor doesn't tell you what to see. They mm -hmm. point you in a direction to look. So like many, uh, people of the millennial generation. He knew about social media. He feels he's an expert in social media. If he could get people to, to pay him to do their social media. Well, there's 40 million people on Instagram that have a million followers. I think there's a lot of people that know how to do that. You know, Coca-Cola isn't going to knock on a homeless guy and say, you know, please handle our account. So the only people he knew had no money. So that didn't make sense. So then I said, one of the truths in the book is fill a void. I hate competition. On any day, there's somebody better looking than me, smarter than me, well, better funded, better connected. I hate competition. But if I'm doing something nobody else is doing, then by definition, I'm the best of the world at it, and I have no competition. So Vin, find a new industry. Find something the press is talking about. Find some area that desperately needs an expert to do their social media. 
and just be the first guy to raise your hand and say, you're the expert in that area. And that's all that he had to do. Now, you get the first client, maybe they don't pay anything, maybe they pay you very little, but you deliver results. And now you have what they call in MBA land, a test case. Here's my case study. And that's all it took. So the same thing he was charging people $200 to do, he's now charging people $30,000 a month to do with no additional effort. What happens when you, like, I know you advise, you know, companies like LinkedIn in the early days, um, there, there's like a famous story around Airbnb or Uber when they first launched and they're going to investors. And because they're such massive disruptors, they're trying to fill a void that usually investors don't see at the time, which is usually in, in these scenarios, the best case for a startup to go kind of rocket ship level. Uh, in that case, how do you advise someone to stick to it, have faith and move forward versus like fill a void that's just not fillable? So you start off with entrepreneurs don't sell things. They solve problems. So you solve a problem for five people. You have friends, solve for a million, you become rich, solve for a billion, you change the world. And I've watched people change the world. So you will know the TAM, the total addressable market. You'll know if what you're going after makes sense. Um, I once had somebody submit a business plan. The first sentence was, if everybody in America ate one rabbit burger a week, no, that is not an addressable market, right? You're like, you know, you're out of your, out of your gourd. Um, so if you can show that, then the next thing is, can you convince people? And it took me 10 years in my career. I used to leave meetings where I was absolutely right, so confident. Why don't they get it? They don't get it. I mean, I went to Pepsi early on to pitch them something in the digital world. And I'm walking down the top floor of their headquarters in New York, past desk after desk that had an IBM Selectrix. There's not a PC anywhere in the C-suite. I'm going, this is not going to go well. And it didn't. But I would leave with this, why don't they get it? When in fact, anybody that's achieved to make those decisions, to make investments, to, to have a, 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 a private equity fund or whatever, they got there by following things that they believe and work for them. It's not their job to change. It's your job to explain the future in a way that people living in the past can comprehend. And the second you switch that onus that the burden's on you, it's much easier to make that happen. Um, I talked about in Disrupt You, one of my favorite stories, two guys I worked with early on. They had a genius idea. Hook up a computer to traffic lights to control traffic. It's called Trafo Data. Should have made a fortune. Turned out city planners had no idea what they were talking about or what a computer was. These were young teenagers, basically, forget it. So Bill Gates and Paul Allen's first company went belly up. Mm. But they learned from that. The second company, Microsoft, did a little bit better. Right. Walt Disney's first company went belly up. Henry Ford's first company went belly up. You learn by doing. And investors would rather invest in somebody that's failed than somebody that's the first time out. Right. So there's no shame in failing. There's shame in throwing the towel and giving up. So again, if you need perseverance, one of the chapters in Future Proofing You is how to turn that perseverance into passion. Because you're going to need that. It's not easy. Vin didn't just sit there and type a few keystrokes and become a millionaire. He didn't date for a year. He didn't watch TV for a year. He worked harder than most people are willing to so it can live the rest of his life the way most people aren't able to. There are so many topics I want to hit on. Just very quickly, have you, uh, to, the, to the last point, have you ever heard of the story of Jerry Ulsman, professor? 
University of Florida, film photography class splits them into two sections. One focused on quantity, one focused on quality. The quantity group gets graded based on how many uh, or the amount of photos they produce by the end of the semester, uh, 100 being A, 90 being B, you know, 80 being C, etc. The, the quality is on the excellence, the best, like the picture perfect, you get one. By the end of it, obviously, the, the quantity group gets and, and it produces like the best version of, of photos because they, during the process, they iterate, they learn from their mistakes, while the, the quality group is literally focused on like, you know, timing the best sunset and they're not really experimenting right. with it as much. Anyways, it, it draws on what you were saying yeah. about just trying. And, and what, what I tell entrepreneurs is in most cases, and I talked about this and disrupt you, your idea sucks. It really does. It's really a half of idea. You can find a ton of holes in it, but if you stick with it, you go deeper into the weeds and grass than anybody else. And that's where you discover the things that change. Um, another great example of that one is there's uh, three guys that before you could swipe to, 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 to date, you had computer dating online. Right. And all the sites were still pictures and you could read about the person. And people were still hooking up the same way. Mm-hmm. But when broadband came along, these three guys said, wait a second, we're going to make our site have videos so you can see the person, hear their voice, their personality, their accent, whatever. We're going to make a fortune. They built a perfect site. It was called TuneIn Hookup. They were going to make so much money, except nobody wanted to date these losers. Nobody. Their whole business plan out the window. But they looked at the data and every business, every opportunity, every failure gives you data. And the data told them something that they didn't know when they wrote their business plan. Nobody wanted to date these losers, but everybody wanted to show their friends how bad these videos were. The first guy put up was standing in front of the elephant at the zoo to talk about why you should go out with him. So sexy. So they changed the name of TuneIn Hookup to YouTube and became billionaires their first year in business. Very true. Very true. This reminds me actually of a story similar to, to Kara Golden, who's the, the founder and CEO of Hint. She Hint, did the yep. same, ex- yeah, the same exact thing, right? Uh, and, and she talked about like gaining insights from investors who were telling her no. They gave her so much insights of the, the direction they were going and kind of the void that they were uh, missing out on. Yeah, the, mo- the more you can iterate your business between your ears, hmm. you're going to find out these things eventually. But if you do it between your two ears, you're not burning through capital and not burning through time. You know, you know, find your disciples, find not grandma to tell you how good you are, find people that'll tell you why you suck. And then if everybody starts telling you where the holes are and you start plugging them, when you have what I call the zombie idea, the idea that can't be killed, then go to raise capital and you will find capital. In the book, you, you describe disruption as the intense introspective process of questioning your assumptions uh, about either your, yourself or your goals. I got a question for you and you focus a lot on millennials as well. I think I'd be in that category. I'm 27. Um, one of the hardest things is, I guess, self-awareness, right? Or, or building self-awareness. I'm curious, how was that process like for you? Or if you're talking to someone, what advice would you give them to build that introspection? So um, I have a TED talk on this, but I was basically told I was stupid. I grew up in Philadelphia, home of the Eagles football team. And we had three reading groups, the Eagles, the Hawks, and the Mud Hens. At six years old, when you're a mud hen, you're pretty getting a pretty strong message. Um, and, and what happened was I was so embarrassed and fear of embarrassment and everything that I couldn't read like the other kids. That whenever there was a group assignment, my hand shot up first. Ooh, ooh, let me be in charge. Then I could delegate everything and mask what I can't do. 
which is what I've done for my entire career. That's all that a founder and CEO does. Insight, perseverance, everything else can be hired. That's how Steve Jobs could create the first trillion dollar company in tech and doesn't know how to read a line of code. He's not a programmer. So I wasn't as introspective as I should have been. Um, I would have accomplished more faster. And I didn't actually start thinking about it until I wrote Disrupt You at the end of what are the, what are the things that I learned. And that voice in your head came to you because your parents didn't want you to have failure. They didn't want you to have pain. Well, pain is part of growing. Pain is part of the process. You know, a lobster has to break out of its shell. So those people gave up on their dreams and they're talking you out of yours. So if you can change that voice in your head, you can change anything. Everybody thinks of changing the world, but no one thinks of changing themselves. So the first third of Disrupt You is about how to change that internal voice. Because once you can change and become what you thought you could Changing business in the world is easy. Yeah, you're sometimes like your worst enemy, right? And I know like Tony Robbins talks about like mantras and like there's obviously a ton of uh, different paths you can take. What works best for you like in terms of that internal voice? How did you build that confidence from being told you were, you know, quote unquote stupid in, in, in school, unfortunately? So my, my perseverance, as I said, is I had two sons young, right out of college, and mm-hmm. I wanted a better life for them than I had. So every time I hit an obstacle, I didn't have the choice of saying, I failed, I give up. They would be punished. I mean, they would suffer for my mistake. So I found out that this didn't work. Let me try something else. I found out this didn't work. Let me try something else. I mean, you know, I knew nothing about finance and stuff. I didn't get that type of background. I ran my first company on my credit cards. That is the worst source of capital. <laughs> paying 36% interest plus penalties. And, you know, the guy, you max them all out. The guy comes to repossess your car. I mean, I was that guy. Mm -hmm. Um, So now that you can do crowdfunding, now that you can go to VCs, now that I understand, I can explain people where sources of capital are so you don't make those mistakes. Um, And the harder you work, the luckier you'll get. You'll, you'll keep on going and, and you'll learn how to take things further. Um, and you learn some, some tricks that are good shortcuts that can be taught. Do you ever come into a scenario where uh, you, you kind of run into this phase where you get comfortable? Like one of the things that really works for me is when I feel like I'm in a kind of a little bit of a plateau, um, I, I try to do something crazy, right? Like I'll, I'll snorkel with whales, I'll go skydiving. I'm not an adrenaline junkie, but it's, it's my way of pushing myself in a, in a zone of, unknown right and then i come back to work that year i'm fully recharged i'm refocused uh, are, are there other ways that you would you would look at this so i always again as i said i hate competition right so whatever business i'm building and doing if i'm right and i discovered a void earlier and you can't control timing but you're out there first in the wilderness competition is going to come up like crazy so i'm always focused on the next new thing. So always moving it forward and and finding that next void. And I believe people shouldn't try to hold on to their companies forever. In most cases, your best buyout offer will happen in the beginning because the second you're showing a new area, the first person you educate in business is not the customer. It's your competition. 
And having been a public company CEO, and you know this because this is what you do for your day job, as a CEO, we'll tell everybody we care about the shareholders and the people, but the honest God truth is most CEOs get minimal pay and a huge comp package based on performance. Mm-hmm. So our sole focus is on this hamster wheel that ends every 16 weeks, quarterly numbers. If you hit the numbers, they pay you millions. You hit the numbers. If that's what you're rewarding me for, that's all I'm going to focus on. So if I want to be profitable, let's cut out designing and inventing new products. That takes years and that costs money. And let's just maximize short-term profits and make companies unstable so I can make a lot of money as a CEO. That's the truth. But here's the opportunity for the entrepreneur. That means those big companies that have lots of capital and lots of momentum aren't investing in their own future. They'd rather do a CapEx acquisition or even an aqua hire to steal your whole team than try to do it themselves. And that's why you see all these companies that go for multiples of people don't understand because it's not the value of what they're earning or you know what their profits are. It's the value that they are to the acquirer. Mm-hmm. speed to market. Um, when nobody was watching television and that ad unit, the 30 and 60 second commercial was going bye-bye, there was a trillion dollar opportunity. CEO created a, a startup digital platform that had the best engagement levels out there. And 18 months later, News Corp buys it for 200 million. That's how you do it. You don't sit there and say, I have to invent the flux capacitor, Right. You can take things that were already invented and just channel them to solve a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It's, it's true in the sense that I think sometimes we tend to complicate, you know, idea creation or figuring out which niche to serve. Like another example, I've seen work really well in the Middle East. Is and this is not well. It could be seen as innovative, but it's literally taken the models that have worked here, just re-prescribe uh, them in a in a way that's formatted Local to our life. culture. Oh, 100%. Dude, it's like the easiest way to do it. <laughs> in the early days of eBay, the first thing that happened is everybody created a, a copy of eBay around the world, and then eBay went and bought them all off. Right. But by the way, all the good ideas in the world are not coming from North America. So you can do the same thing by seeing something overseas mm. and, and bring it here. Now, what we learned on the backside of the pandemic is before we understood we're one click away from 7 billion people, but now you're not limited to hiring the best people to live within 10 miles of you. You can hire the best people on the planet and they may be willing to work for less. So having remote workers, having a virtual company is now the norm. And you're saying the big companies no longer needing those giant edifices. So you can bring in the talent that you need at each stage. Um, very key. One of the, I think the coolest parts about your story is that you've had the opportunity well-deserved, obviously, to to advise some of the best companies in the world on the tech side and a few different subsectors. Well, I'm curious, one, if you look back when you were in that classroom, you were told you were stupid. I hate that word. Sorry, but I know it was part of the story. No, um, and, and obviously, it's what led you here. So it's probably a good thing. Um, but if you look at, at that and your process to get to literally sitting on a desk next to Reed Hoffman, how would you summarize that process happened? Insane. I don't believe it. But uh, if this is a dream, don't (laughs) unplug me and wake me up. Um, I I didn't understand timing and you can't control timing. 
But very early on in the 19, so I started on the internet before you were born. Oh God, that makes me feel old. Um, in 78. In, in the 1980s, I had this idea that you, that you could put video on a computer and a computer and TV would become one. I thought it would take a year. I didn't know it would take years. And I'm not the guy inventing the science to make that happen. I'm the guy coming up with how to use it. So when you eventually have the timing match your dreams and your ambition and your work, suddenly everybody comes to you. Now you have better deal flow. And if you continue to follow your same process and not get comfortable, you'll continue to solve new things. And so, yeah, and don't be afraid to try whatever. I mean, when I was your age, I had this idea. Um, I was making video games. I had successful video games, but video games sounded like this back then. Beep, 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 beep. I said, what if we had real rock and roll music? I mean, you got the speakers in the PC. Why not have, you know, real music? And so I decided to write to a guy named Bill Gates, who I didn't know. Said this would really help PCs and Windows and everything now that Windows can handle this. Would you write a letter of introduction to the only billionaire in the music industry, David Geffen, so that I can meet him? He'll take a, a meeting if the richest guy in the world says it. And that's how I ended up sitting across from Geffen and signing Aerosmith and Guns N' Roses and Peter Gabriel and all these acts to be in my video game. He could have said no. And then David could have said no. But what did I have to lose by trying? Mm-hmm. You know, so you end up by trying the audacious because you believe you can. And the reason why you can is because most people won't even try. If you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of the, the model I've, I've taken for the, the, this podcast, different content creation. I mean, that's exactly the mindset. Curious, just before we move on here, what, what sort of games did you or were, were you most fond of the ones that you built? Uh, um, so the one, the, the one was called VidGrid that was with the rock and roll stuff. Um, music videos were popular. This is the era of MTV and whatever. Yeah. And music yeah. videos, if you think about them, are real quick edits. You know, the picture changes, the picture changes, you know, really fun. So what if you chopped up a music video like a checkerboard, scrambled the pieces, and you have to put them together before the music video ends? That's the, 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 the basics of the game. And as you get to higher levels, there's more pieces and the videos, it's not like, oh, I'm dragging this piece and it fits to that face. It's like, oh, now it's a different scene. Now it's, you know, it's whatever's going on. And you're listening to your favorite artists. And if you made it to the top, there was a, a bonus video of, uh, of Kurt Cobain because uh, I didn't want to exploit him. He died during production. But, you know, everybody enjoyed it. So when video games got to the Twitch reflex that exceeded my coordination, I no longer made video games because I couldn't relate to the playing skills. Um, but it was a lot of fun. And again, when nobody else is making video games, you're going to be the best video game maker. Mm. How do you know when to step away from something? Like in this case, obviously, you again, you had the awareness to know when to pull back from video games and move on. But more importantly, like what then do you take like a break? Do you do you reanalyze? How do you know what, what to get into next is my question. So, so again, it was basic data. Um, most money I ever spent making as a publisher uh, video game was $50,000. A lot of money when it's your own money, okay? And you're, you're, you're young. 
And all of a sudden, as video games were becoming more mainstream and Microsoft starts a game division, all these people where people are spending tens of millions of dollars to make a game. Remember, a game is binary. There's no home video and, you know, cruise ship rentals. There is, it either hits or it's zero. I'm like, those, those are bets I'm not going to take. Time to sell. So next thing you know, I'm Universal Studios Entertainment Company. Huge in music, huge in movies, huge in television. They need to be huge in games. So why not acquire? And then, like, by that point, I'm like, I'm sick to games. I've been doing games forever. What's the new thing that I'm intrigued with that I know that I can, can create something that doesn't exist? Somebody later will do better. So, you know, back in, you know, the late 90s, I created the first social network for college kids, you know, 10 years before Facebook. Got a million members. It had uh, the secret way to monetize it was we knew the day you turned 18 and hit you with our Animal House uh, uh, credit card. Was your first card you tend to use the longest and make a fortune on that business. But we tried advertising on the internet, which wasn't being done with a new startup called DoubleClick. We did audio with Mark Cuban and broadcast. I mean, all these other firsts that we're trying, we just sewed them all together. And it was, you know, it was great. Was it the best interface? No. If you look at the Wayback Machine, I should be shot. I don't, I don't understand interface design. It didn't exist before then. People figured it out. Um, but it was a lot of fun. And for me, you know, I don't want to be compared about somebody else because again, somebody else is better. Mm-hmm. So I'd rather be first and therefore the best. Do you think it's easier to nowadays to, to become an entrepreneur, make money? Oh, absolutely. You know, everybody says uh, Sir Isaac Newton is the greatest scientist, but yet he said it's because he stood on the shoulders of all those scientists before him. You know, 5G, we have massive bandwidth connecting everybody. Everybody walks around with a device more powerful than what got us on the moon. You're one click to doing commerce with anybody anywhere in the world. It's borderless. It's, it's seamless, okay? You don't have to have a room full of servers and racks and all the stuff. I mean, my, my IT team used to say, you know, we need more stuff. And I'm like, what are these winky blinks going to cost me? I mean, they could have been lying. I have no idea, you know? So all that exists. On top of it, people are now making new tools that, that you can use, software that you can use for free, that, that you can run your virtual company. All you have to do is connect the dots. There's people that have written algorithms of just testing fake ads on Instagram, seeing what converts and then sourcing the product. Mm-hmm. Now, Alibaba, the world's largest retailer, has zero inventory. Facebook is the biggest media company. They, can, they, can, they create none of their media. I mean, so all these are about networked and connections. And so the only advantage any company, I don't care if you're General Motors or you're one person in in your apartment, the only advantage you have is gleaning insights faster than your competition. That's it. One of of the themes I think that's emerging now, um, I was listening to to Chamath and uh, Jason Kalkanis on, on their podcast they were basically talking about obviously Robin Hood and, and the whole GameStop stuff. I don't, I don't think we'll get into that, but the, the theme was basically around democratization, which I think you touched on a little bit when you're talking about like squeezing the middle class and giving them the opportunity to do stuff like what we're talking about now, right? Like you want to build a website, you know, you got Shopify. If you want to sell stuff online, right? WordPress, yeah. like 
a lot it, of it has a, become it's easier. a level playing field. You don't actually need capital in in future proofing you. Again, I've talked about all you need is to solve a problem. There was a mom on the middle of the week, school night. Mm-hmm. They bought some poster board for her daughter to make her signs for a project the next day in school. And the daughter writes crooked and is embarrassed and looks horrible. Mom has to run out to the store 10 o'clock at night and buy some more poster board. She says, I'm not doing this again. So she took a ruler and she made thin little lines across it so that her daughter could you know, write on it neatly. And the next day she called her sister-in-law and said, you know, why don't they sell board like this? So make a long story short, filed a patent, went to the biggest manufacturer, and now they sit back with a license model, make millions of dollars a year off a of one night's homework assignment. I can tell you a thousand stories like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, a flight attendant who was tired of fiddling through her purse for her keys, made a little thing that goes inside your pocketbook that holds your keys. You sell millions of them. I mean, would anybody have guessed the most successful product on the history of Shark Tank was a sponge? So it's not, it's not this rocket science. It's not out of reach. It's commitment mm-hmm. and overcoming obstacles. That's all it is. Do you know those, um, I forgot what the, what are they, the pop sockets, I think is what they're called, on the back of a phone? like the ones that kind of help you hold it up or whatever uh they were valued i think at like three billion dollars as as one you know the fidget spinners yeah all this stuff that sometimes you're like are you serious (laughs) you know well i i remember again starting out with no background and just winging it you know one day in the video game thing i there was a lawsuit between two companies because somebody had the patent for the background moving across i'm like we all do that what do you mean somebody now owns that (laughs) <laughs> and, and you suddenly, suddenly realize that, you know, you can file the right IP and have an unsuccessful business and still make millions of dollars. Um, uh, Sarah Blakely, when she came up with her, her idea, everybody laughed at her. One person ripped up her business card in her face and she didn't have a penny. So she went to Barnes and Noble and bought patents for dummies. With no education, she wrote her own patent and Spanx is a multi-billion dollar company today. So I tell these stories and I, and I show the steps so people don't think that it's, oh, they're so much smarter. Um, higher IQ people do not end up wealthier. Better educated people don't end up wealthier. Um, going to the best schools don't end up wealthier. And the era of a college degree doesn't make you wealthier. Data doesn't lie. You know, if you talk to chancellors of universities, they'll always tell you, we befriend the C students because those are the ones that endow the college for the most money. Yeah. Well, it's like what you said, right? Like you're, you, uh, when I asked you, what was your why, right? You said like, you're obviously you had two sons now. So your back was, was against the wall. And it's similar for me. Like my family's in Lebanon. You, you pointed out the situation's not great there. That's my constant why every day, right? It's a different kind of fuel that I have, I think, than, you know, there may be someone graduating from Harvard. And by the way, that's one of the reasons why immigrants are so successful in this country. Some immigrant may be doing a, man, a menial job, a janitor working in a, in a mart or whatever. And on the surface, that's what everybody else sees. But to them, that's a stepping stone in a journey that started when they decided to make that commitment. When a young kid came to this country from South Africa, he wanted to know, could he make it in the U.S.? 
And he said, well, if I could live off a dollar a day, it can't be too hard to make $30 a month. So he lived on, you know, top ramen and oranges. And that's how Elon Musk convinced himself to start his first business. They had one PC, they slept in the office, they didn't have an apartment, they went and used the Y for showers. At night, they shut down their website and they coded off of it during the day they let it up. And Alon's now, you know, on some days of the week, the richest man in the world. But it's that drive. One out of three Fortune 500 companies were created by an immigrant to the U.S. or their first generation child. And it's mm -hmm. that passion and purpose that emboldened the perseverance. Speaking of Elon Musk, one of the interesting things, like you pointed out, right? I mean, they had a lot of struggles early, not only like in his personal journey, but even building Tesla was about to go bankrupt, had like two weeks of cash in the bank or whatever runway. Um, he's an interesting case because one of the videos, I don't know if you've ever come across it, but he's basically like, you have to work more than 100 hours a week. And he does this like simple math, basically. When I look at the book called Future Proofing You in a time like COVID where health has become increasingly more important in terms of raising awareness, whether it's sleep, food, exercise, to try to combat as best as you can for a potential pandemic. How do you balance the two as an entrepreneur? Grinding yeah. your ass and-, and So you know, I, in, in Disrupt You, I talked about when Alan brought me in and wanted me to you know, be the, his first head of marketing at, at, uh, at Tesla. Um, very interesting man. Um, very, very brilliant, very driven. But let's talk about healthcare for a second. If you didn't think our healthcare system was broken before, I don't have to make that argument. Japan's one third our size. They had 3,000 deaths. I'm not a math major, but that means if they were our side, they'd have 9,000 deaths, not a half a million deaths. Here's what we also know. We know that doctors aren't just suddenly hatched on Tuesday. We know how many apply to medical schools, how many get out, how long it takes. So baby boomers are retiring. We're going to have in the next five years a shortage in the U.S. of 110,000 doctors. There's no way to wave a magic wand and fill that void. So here's what's going to fill it. Wearables. We're going to have more control over our health by having wearables that constantly monitor our vitals. We're going to be able to share genomic information so that more customized responses. And so AI will do a lot of this. Think in the, in, the, in the case of a radiologist. Best radiologist in the world sees 1,000 patients in his career, 10,000 patients, pick a number. An AI system will have seen millions, every single scan that's ever been done, and know to 999999 accuracy, is it cancer or isn't it? So expert systems are automating some of it, but the leading causes of death in our country are self-imposed, so if we can start giving people more feedback, it's one thing for your doctor to say, you know, if you don't change your lifestyle, you're going to have a heart attack. It's another thing for your smart glasses to say in your ear, you are going to have a heart attack in the next 45 minutes. Please go directly to the hospital. No joke. In like the Siri voice, man, that would give me a heart attack by itself a little bit faster. James Earl Jones <laughs> saying it to you would, would get you a little more attention. That's true. Um, <laughs> But yeah, no. So, I mean, I've looked at, so in my example, uh, not that I like to talk about my health. Um, when my kids wanted me to exercise more, we all got Fitbits and they were in their twenties, uh, a lot more energetic and, but I'm more competitive than anybody. Um, so, you know, I was putting in the steps and everything. And 
What's supposed to motivate you is their software says you're in the top 10% of people your age and number of steps. You're in the top 2%. I never got that. You know what I got? Getting less than two hours sleep can cause psychosis. 99% of the people your age are sleeping more. I mean, I just kept on getting this and I realized it was the largest sleep study ever done that nobody ever realized was being done. And I found it fascinating. Um, but we're going to see a dichotomy of those that are going to be able to have longer, more fulfilling lives because their bodies are working better. So being in your 90s will be like being in your 70s today. And then at the other hand, we have those that are feeling left out, left behind, struggling for leftovers from society. The average life of a non-college graduate in the United States is shrinking. You know, their jobs have disappeared, their industries have disappeared, and no one is showing them a way. In future-proofing you, I asked her permission. I, I, I put an email in there that I got from a reader. She was in her 50s. She started a business, lost all of it, and she decided to kill herself. And so she called to say goodbye to her daughter, thinking maybe in the back of her mind her daughter would call 911 or something. And instead, her daughter laughed at her. Not in a cruel way. She laughed. You're going to kill yourself over money? That's the dumbest thing I ever heard. And, and her daughter gave her disrupt you. And she then saw failing as part of the process. And she was writing me to say she has a new successful business and she's happy. And, and you know, I don't take the credit for it. It's in her. But people need to be shown that there's a path. In Mexico, we started Entrepreneur Week with, with the president of Mexico because they didn't have, you know, you want to play basketball because you've seen Michael Jordan. You want to start a startup because you've seen Mark Zuckerberg. In a lot of countries and probably in Lebanon, you know, you, know, you get the head of Nissan comes to, comes to mind, but uh, that's another story for another show. Yeah. But don't have those. <laughs> self- Too many families have um, family money and too many societies try to penalize startups. In India, there is a tax on money that you give to startups. So before the money goes from the investor to the startup, a third of it goes to the government. So if it wasn't risky enough, you're now going to make it even harder for you to get your cash back. Um, I've only worked for one saint in my life, somebody that was you know, uh, as close to without sin as I've ever met. And he was from Lebanon, a guy named Ralph Nader. I used to ghostwrite for him. And uh, his hobbies were watching baseball, eating ice cream. He had two pairs of shoes, three pairs of socks, didn't own a car, you know, could have cashed in for millions off of his fame, but he just literally felt the burden of the problems of our world on his shoulders. Is he the political activist, author, lecturer? Is that him? Yeah. Okay. Um, Interesting. When he was your age, he took on General Motors by writing a book, Unsafe at Any Speed, saying that their car, people weren't getting in accidents because it's their fault. They were getting an accident because the car wasn't a safe car. And was that the, was that the Pinto, the one that would like self combust or whatever? Is no, that years, years before the Pinto? This was in the sixties. Um, but he okay. from that came the class action lawsuit and so many other stuff. But when I was working for him, one of the things that, that we were trying to solve nowadays we all recycle and we take that for granted. But there was no recycling, and the reason is. No store wants you to bring back your soda cans filled with sugar and slime in there, and then they're going to get the rats and the bugs. I mean, so there's no incentive for the grocery store to do it, and there's no incentive for the consumer. Yes, it's good for the planet, but that doesn't tend to motivate people. So here's how with the team there came up with, and I wish I could say 
who was the one person with the insight. But they said, wait a second, it's the same way that I do with all of my projects and, and, and disrupt you when I talk about other people's money. Who could you make benefit the most? Well, back then, a can of soda was a nickel. Okay. So what if you made every time you sold it, you had to sell it for a dime. But when you returned the can, you got a nickel back. But that dime is held on by Coke or Pepsi, by the bottler. So they know nobody's ever going to be returning these things. They're thrilled. They're going to promote ads about recycling six ways from Tuesday because we suddenly made them the most profitable companies in the history of, of, of time because we changed the business model. So how you structure a deal, how you structure business model, so many people don't get that training. And so in Future Proofing You, I really lay that out so people can see that these people that are household names didn't make money the way that they thought that they made money. Spielberg mm -hmm. didn't become a billionaire from directing movies. You know, it's the deal structure. And so if you can explain those things to people, they can emulate it. I love it. I, I got one more for you, uh, Jay. The, one of the things I personally felt, um, especially, you know, I would say from like March, even to now, we've seen a rally within the markets. We've seen it with, especially with crypto. There's a lot going on in, in different places. Right, whether it's the markets, it's angel investing, it's it's crypto. All these these things, I think, cause a bit of uh, either fear of missing out, fear of like invalidity, or feel like you're just not part of the pot, like you don't have a hand in the pot. And I felt it a couple of times personally, not related to necessarily those subsectors, but just generally being, especially being on social, right? And you see different folks doing different things. FOMO is what drives social. Exactly right, and and, and a comparison is the thief of joy. So I, I love that quote a lot. But how do you? What, or what advice would you give someone who is feeling like that? And, and what kind of strategy would you give them to tackle it? So the simplest strategy is you're going to have to commit to lifelong learning. Our world is too dynamic. What you learned in school isn't going to carry through life. You know, what a doctor learned in med school isn't going to help him with patients 30 years down the road. So there's lots of new sectors always coming along and you have to understand and learn and, and, and talk. What was great about the world pre-pandemic is because I'm a speaker, I'm attending conferences all over the world, all kinds of topics where I'm getting paid to be there, but I'm also getting paid to learn because I sit and watch the other speakers and the other topics on industries that I never knew existed, different supply chain stuff. And you start seeing things and, and you learn and you put and connect the dots. So Brock Pierce sat me down. I don't know, 2012, 2013, tell me about Bitcoin. I like Brock. I've known him forever. It made no sense to me. I got in early, you know, in that couple hundred dollars thing. But I also understood that it is solely based on consumer sentiment, which is the same as any stock price. And, you know, so with any of these things, just don't be a pig. Pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. So just, you know, if you make money, take the money off the table. Ever since I made the mistake of not selling my first company when I should have at the peak, I'm the first one to say sell. Mm. Because if you're as smart as you think you are, you'll have another idea. But if the world changes, this may have been your one ticket to make sure that your grandchildren and great-grandchildren don't have to worry about money. Because you can make generational wealth very quickly in today's connected world. If you found this podcast useful, make sure to share it out with your community. And if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the podcast 
I'll see you next time.